Welcome to the Loins of History, a podcast that seeks to connect history to current events. And we are dedicated to correcting political and historical illiteracy. My name is Jay, and I'm joined by my co-host, Colin. And this is episode two of our series on the fall of the Byzantine Empire. Last week, Colin covered a synopsis of just what was the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. And this week, I think we're going to cover the fall of Constantinople. So, Colin, what do you have for us this week? If you are an emotional person, especially when it comes to history, just go ahead and strap yourself in and get a box of mm. tissues because this is a this is a <laughs> tough one. <laughs> <laughs> right up there with the the burning of the library at Alexandria. Yeah, yeah, the historical equivalent. If you've if you've ever watched the Lord of the Rings, it's kind of like the Battle of Helm's Deep, but but Gandalf never shows up. So that. Not to spoil alert, but that's kind of what happens here. So I don't know um, if I can handle that, Colin. <laughs> yeah, no, this is going to be a good episode. This is really one of the most fascinating sieges and battles in, in history for a lot of reasons. You know, we talked last week about the continuation of the Roman Empire in the East with Constantinople, and it was a very broad 1100 year. Uh, overview of what they had done and how they had begun to decline to the point of being conquered. And I know I said in like the very first episode of this series that empires don't just fall in a single battle. And I know I'm like contradicting myself in this episode, but last week really painted the picture of the decline for many hundreds of years. And this is really just the denouement, the climax, the end of not just the Roman Empire, but the Middle Ages as a whole. And if you think about it, this, when Constantinople was taken over uh, by the Turks and became Istanbul, it ended a connection that the world had to antiquity, right? Because Rome was founded in 753 BC. So, if you look at that as one successive empire that had just changed dynasties and really kind of moved locations in the Mediterranean, it was one empire that connected into antiquity and now right. that was gone. Pivotal moment in history. So, we're not going to have key takeaways in this episode specifically. This episode, we're going to kind of set up the key takeaways for next week and really gotcha. kind of looking at this longer series as a whole and trying to connect that to the present. But the flow of this episode is really just going to be some background, like specific background on who was fighting, the run up to the battle. Then we're going to go through the actual order of battle and the events of the 47-day siege of Constantinople right until the fall of Constantinople and the three days afterward where there was um, three days of plundering. So that's going to be kind of the general order of this episode. A little background on this battle. The battle itself was fought between the Ottomans, led by Mehmed II, and the Byzantines, led by Constantine XI of the Paleologos dynasty. So, the Ottomans were, a little background on them, they were a, a Turkish a nation that had formed after the Seljuks had been defeated by the Mongols in 1291. They were kind of a group of frontier, I think they were called originally the Ghazis or, or literally raiders for Turkish tribes of the frontier of the Byzantine Empire. And as the Mongols pushed them in and the Seljuk power was broken, they were pushed to the north and west of Anatolia. So as they got pushed to the west and the north, they began putting pressure on the collapsing Byzantines and they began to, to kind of systematically take over their territory. Even though they were nomadic and they didn't really have any siege experience, they were able to start wrestling away these villages and towns and then larger and larger cities. And once they had pushed the Byzantines all the way to the Bosphorus, they concentrated their efforts south to consolidate the Anatolian Peninsula against other uh, Turkish groups and so formed this nation of the Ottomans originally under Osman I. So, uh, once he came to power at the beginning of the 14th century, you know, they began to incur have raids and incursions across um, the Bosphorus Strait via Gallipoli into Thrace. And they kind of got a taste of European or Greek treasures, as they would say. So, over the coming decades, they would begin to encircle Constantinople and the Byzantines around Thrace and the Balkans down into Greece and really just start cutting off Constantinople from any outside help outside of their navy and the harbor and the Golden Horn within on the Bosphorus. So, yeah. So the Ottomans were 
as already establishing themselves in the Balkans prior to this battle. Yes. As, as a matter of fact, Mehmed II's father um, had begun fighting in the Balkans starting in the early 1400s and began pushing into the Balkans and fighting these individual tribes. And he, rather than truly conquering and destroying, he kind of conquered, subjugate, kind of similar to the Mongols in Russia, where he would just say, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to have suzerainty over you. You're going to pay tribute to me, but you're going to kind of govern yourselves. And when I call on you, you have to submit troops to me. That was sort of the arrangement that he had worked out. But at this point, he's pressing up against the Hungarians and other European nations beyond Constantinople. And as a matter of fact, he, Mehmed's the father, began fighting with the Hungarians. And as part of a truce, May. Mehmed II actually ascended and became the sultan when he was 12 years old in 1244. So in 1244, he became the sultan and implored his father to come and help him as a man by the name John Hunyadi, who was a Hungarian, had begun resisting these the Turks. And actually, though he was defeated a few times, actually won kind of some guerrilla style campaigns and would eventually later become a hero for a lot of Eastern European countries for defeating the Turks at the Battle of Belgrade. And I believe Kosovo was another one. So he was kind of a thorn in the Turk side, but Mehmed had ascended to the throne as Sultan at 12 and had kind of cut his teeth early in dealing with fighting Europeans and Christians and having to run an empire. After that, he actually gave the Sultanate back to, or he gave his father um, the throne back and let him become Sultan again. And he was, his father then died in 1251, where he reattained the, the title of Sultan when he was not yet 20 years old in 1251. But once he became Sultan for the second time, he set his sights on Constantinople, right? So he had already had battle for about eight years. He's 20 years old, 21, becomes 21 when he attacks Constantinople. And he had set his sights and began laying the groundwork by building fortresses. And it's actually interesting. So across the Bosphorus, there was a fortress that his grandfather had set up. And so he decided just about five miles north of Constantinople in an area that they controlled to build another fortress so he could have complete control of the Bosphorus. So the fortress was actually called Bogaz Kesson, and that was called the straight blocker or throat cutter. And this was in 1452, so he had built this across from the fortress that his grandfather had made and basically imposed a toll on any ship that came within range of its guns. And actually, he uh, one of the first days that it was operational with cannons, they sunk a they destroyed a Venetian ship with one shot from their cannon and beheaded all of the Venetian sailors who swam ashore and tried to survive as a message that they you were not to trifle with Mehmed II and you will pay your tolls, and that he controlled the Bosphorus Strait. So he he obviously had his sights set on Constantinople. And if you read Gibbon toward the end of his like volume six, he starts getting into this. But Mehmed was uh, seems to be obsessed with this Greek right taking over the Greek treasures and this Greek empire, and he painted them as an enemy of his forefathers and his ancestors. So it was kind of this ancestral feud that he was avenging and he viewed it as his right from God to go and take. And this was just one step into it. So he was extremely motivated from the beginning to go take this city. So, you know, on the Byzantine side, they were led by Emperor Constantine the Eleventh of the Paleologos dynasty. He was born in 1405 and he ruled after John the Eighth. So he was actually a very capable military man throughout his upbringing from the 1420s on, he was successful in the military. As a matter of fact, in the 1440s, right around the same time that Mehmed II was fighting in the Balkans against the Hungarians, he actually tried to expand Byzantine territory in Greece because at the time, it wasn't just Constantinople on the Isthmus. They actually had a few small territories along the Peloponnese that were nominally under their control. And he tried to expand and actually did push the Turks out a little bit. He rebuilt a fortress called the Hexamillion. Unfortunately for him, the Turks refocused their efforts and pushed them back and whatever they gained was actually lost. But there was a brief time where they expanded the empire. He ascended to the throne in 1459. And what's interesting, he kind of recognized that there was like three really, really big issues when he became emperor. Like obviously the Ottomans were the most existential threat to their existence. He could look out 
I have to think that he looked out and saw just a few miles from the wall, the Theodosian walls, the Ottomans, who though Mehmed, when he came to the throne in 1451, was speaking of peace, he knew that he meant otherwise. I think Gibbon quotes and says, peace was on his lips, but war was in his heart for Mehmed II. So I think Constantine XI knew that and he understood it. So he knew he had to make preparations. So there was that. He didn't have an heir at the time, which as we know, like succession becomes a huge deal. As a matter of fact, like even though he had become emperor at this very perilous time in Byzantine history, he was still fighting with his brothers over legitimacy and taking over the throne. And as a matter of fact, the Paleologos dynasty kind of usurped the throne originally after they had expelled the Latins in 1261. So, he kind of understood that that's a big deal. And if we do move on from this existential threat and survive the Ottomans, I have to have an heir. So, that was always something kind of a big deal and that'll come into play after the fall. And then the third one was actually repairing relations between the East and the West. His predecessor, John VIII, was also like him and he understood that they had to reconcile the Greek Orthodox Church with the Western Latin Church. Back in the 1180s, there was a slaughter of Latin Christians by the Greek Orthodox Church, by Greek Orthodox. And then likewise, obviously, the Latins slaughtered uh, people within the walls of Constantinople in 1204. So, there was just there's bad blood and animosity. And he knew that unless he got help from the West, like genuine help, like a crusade almost – that yeah. they would not survive for very long. And so, that was his long game that he knew he had to repair that. And there were several attempts that he made. He tried to ratify a union between the East and the West, some other treaties, and tried to build a relationship with the Pope at the time. Unfortunately, the, at this point, like the West was kind of exhausted of their crusades. They had began almost 300, what, 200, do my math, 350 years prior, so they had been crusading for a long time. France and England, the largest powers in Europe, had been fighting a hundred years war. The Italian city-states were really just kind of interested in making money. Spain was in the middle of the Reconquista. So, they're really – the Pope could only do so much at this point. So, these nations yeah. were forming and they had their own problems and a lot of them kind of thought that Constantinople could stand on its own or they really didn't care. So, that was kind of his issue that he was over trying to overcome. That's a little background on the Ottomans and the Byzantines and Constantinople. Byzantines and where they're at. Now, let's talk about the city itself. If you've ever seen a map of Constantinople, it sits on an isthmus on the Bosphorus River and it essentially looks like a triangle where you have a long wall, the land wall that stretches about six miles, I believe, across the land connecting two bodies of water. And then there's sea walls basically making a naval assault on the city impossible. And on the other side of one of those bodies of water, is called the, it's called the Golden Horn. And there's a, a suburb of Constantinople called Galata. And that is fortified. And across that strait, the Golden Horn, is uh, this massive sea chain that was erected. So, you couldn't just drive ships directly into the Golden Horn and land troops either. So, they were protected really well. Unfortunately, if you remember from last week, we talked about the city during like Justinian and the Macedonian dynasties from 400 years prior. The city at those points was about 500,000 people. Because of the bubonic plague that came through and ravaged Constantinople 100 years prior, plus just subsequent depopulations from poor the poor economy, battling the Ottomans, people leaving that if they could, the city was down to like 50,000 people. So, it was essentially the only way I could describe it to visualize is like a kind of husk of a once great city that had now begun to re-ruralize and was essentially small villages kind of clustered around each other and with farmland in between surrounded by massive walls. Now, the Theodosian walls were still standing. However, they were built a thousand years ago. So, they had begun to come into somewhat of a disrepair. But they were still standing and they were still formidable and there was a hundred foot moat between these double walls. So, it was still a very formidable defense, one that would probably be impenetrable without the help of gunpowder and siege cannons. Dude, that's pretty wild to think that there was this city that, had, that was so big yet had, had so few people and it was, was like farmland inside the city walls. And the city walls are over a thousand years old. Like that's like 
sounds like something out of a movie. It's kind of like an apocalyptic movie. Like I can, if you were to transport somebody from Justin, you know, the the court of Justinian to this period of you know early spring, fourteen fifty three, they wouldn't recognize. They would say this is kind of like my city, but it's not there. It's it's hollowed out and empty. It's a tenth of the size of the population, and you know, at the time with fifty thousand people, you think about it, they couldn't field an army, almost hardly. So. Looking at the armies of these two, so the Ottoman army was about 80,000 soldiers. So, anytime you read historical estimates of armies, and this is kind of a disclaimer, you always see this wide range of like 50,000 to 200,000 and you really just don't know. Uh, 80,000 is probably pretty accurate in this case. They've done a lot of modern studies on it and they, they, they really do think 80,000 seems pretty appropriate for the Ottoman army. And I also tend to believe that because Mehmed II was – at this battle personally. So, I have to think that he probably led a pretty large army of, of 80,000. Mm. That's that's huge if you think about it. That's that's massive. Mm. You think about the supply lines and the logistics to move that army and I'll get into that in a second. But So, his army was 80,000. Of that army, there was probably close to 10,000 Janissaries, which were the elite Christian soldiers of the Turks. They were the best of the best. They had 1,500 Serbian cavalry. When I had mentioned earlier that they, his Mehmed II's father had imposed, you know, basically pacts with some of the areas that he conquered saying like, when I need you, you have to supply troops based on this treaty. Well, unfortunately, they had to supply 1,500 cavalry, Serbian cavalry to Mehmed to take, to take Constantinople. They also had roughly 70 cannons and so, they were ranged into like 14 or 15 different batteries. So, these cannons at the time were very, very rudimentary. Now, there is one cannon that I do want to take a moment to, to call out. And so, it was the cannon of Orban. So, Orban was a, a Hungarian actually and he was kind of a chemist, engineer, cannon maker. And so, I have to think he was probably really smart because he was kind of on the forefront of this design. Gunpowder obviously had been around in China for a long time. It had made its way to Europe and had been weaponized over like the past hundred years or so, maybe, but it had not really become an effective siege weapon until now. So Orban actually went to Constantinople and Constantine the Eleventh in 1452 and said, "I can work for you. Just pay me my money." And unfortunately for Constantine the Eleventh, he actually didn't have enough money to really pay him. So this guy Orban was never being paid appropriately the money he was promised. There was actually not enough materials. Like they, he needed an obscene amount of bronze and metal to create this cannon for the Byzantines. And the Byzantines at this point just couldn't afford it, and they didn't have the materials to make this cannon. So. Orban basically left destitute and tried to go find someone else to work. Well, he's when you leave Constantinople, if you go in any direction, you're going to run right into the Turks. And that's actually where he went to. And he actually ended up in the court of Mehmed II. I never, I had heard about the guns of Orban, but I never knew that he wasn't a Turk. No, he was Hungarian. He's a Hungarian Christian. Orban designed a weapon that was 27 feet long and had a diameter of 30 inches. It was so big that a person could actually crawl into the cannon, to the barrel wow. of the cannon. Yeah, it was massive. It required 60 oxen to pull it and 200 men. That's how large wow. this cannon was. When he was standing before the Sultan of Mehmed II, Mehmed was inquiring, and I'm kind of paraphrasing the situation here, but basically Mehmed II was asking him, how powerful can you make this? The walls of Constantinople are strong. And Orban basically said that he could bring down the walls of Babylon which were supposedly stronger than the walls of Constantinople. So, Mehmed II was so impressed by this that he gave him everything that he needed. He set up a foundry in Adrianople and he built this massive 27-foot cannon. And he actually, because he was transporting, getting into the logistics of this, so when he you know met with Orban and these guns were being made, he actually had to send hundreds of artisans and masons and all of these laborers ahead of them to fortify the roads and the bridges so they'd be strong enough to handle the weight of the army and all of these supplies and cannons that they were carrying. So, for hundreds of miles in front of them, they had to redesign the roads so they'd be strong That's enough. That's crazy. So, what about the Byzantine army? The Byzantine army was fortunately in a very sad state. In March of 1453, 
kind of understanding what was happening, Constantine XI put out a decree to a census, and he wanted to see how many fighting men he had. And the estimates came back at just under 5,000. It was like 4,900 and something fighting men, Mm. so soldiers. So, less than a tenth of what the Ottomans had. Now, they were buffered buffeted by about 2,000 foreign troops. So, these are mostly uh, mercenaries and and soldiers from Genoa, Venice, and a few other other Christian states. Some were mercenaries, but there's about 200 total that came to fight. Interestingly enough, there was actually a small Turkish contingent that Hmm. fought as like 200 Turks that fought with the Byzantines and they actually fought until the death and were loyal all the way to the end. So, yeah, a little tidbit. So, all told... Estimates have between seven to 8,000 soldiers on the Byzantine side. That's all they had. Mm. Now, of their soldiers that they received, a lot of those foreign, the leadership of that 2,000-man foreign army that they had, they had a Guistiniani. I don't know. It's very Italian and it's tough to pronounce. Guistiniani. Guistiniani. Yeah. That's a tough one to say. Uh, He was actually an expert in siege warfare and he was actually charged with the defense of the city. So, he was like the right-hand man to Constantine and was helping set up the defense of the city. And actually, during the the actual battle, he was to the right of Constantine on the wall. And so, then you also had a few others, the Bocchiardi brothers, Guillermo Minotto and Teodoro Caristo, the Langasco brothers, and Archbishop Leonardo of Chios. And I'm sorry I butchered those names. I'm reading them from a list of notes I took down. They're, they're very Italian and I'm not. So I apologize that I butchered those names. But those men that had come to the call of, of Constantine were professional soldiers and uh, were very able capable defenders. And they actually did put up valiant defense and formulated a plan that put them in the best position to, to survive this onslaught. So, that's kind of the the lead up to the battle. There's a few other things that started occurring um, right before the battle. As the army began to march from Adrianople and began arriving outside the outskirts of Constantinople, there were some skirmishes between the Ottomans and a few of the kind of locals that lived outside the city gates of Constantinople. Um, and at one point, there was some back and forth between Constantine XI's ambassadors and Mehmed II. And I do want to read one quote that I thought was really, like, it was just really good. And it kind of captured, I think, the mentality of Constantine going into this battle. And here's where he, what he says. He says, since neither oaths nor treaty nor submission can secure peace, pursue, said he to Muhammad, your impious warfare, my trust is in God alone. If it should please him to mollify your heart, I shall rejoice in the happy change. If he delivers my, the city into your hands, I submit without a murmur to his holy will. But until the judge of the earth shall pronounce between us, it is my duty to live and die in the defense of my people. So, those were kind of the, I think that was the thought process. And the, the that's last- That's pretty wild, man. Yeah, that's, that is what I think captures Constantine's mentality the last few months going into this. He understood that war is coming. I've, I'm going to either live or die, but I'm prepared to die on the walls of Constantinople. You know, as sad as the whole like, because we know we know how this ends, right? <laughs> and as sad as it all is, like, it's fitting that the last Roman emperor would go down, you know, in a blaze of glory, like that is that his last words would be to his enemy, like, "Hey, if it's God will that you either chill or that we win, cool." But even if we lose, like, I'm still going to fight. Dude, you know what's – so, in in Gibbon, it's amazing that he goes out this far in his writing. But he obviously lived centuries ago, so his writing is very eloquent. And uh, 18th one of the century, things, right? Yeah, 18th century. One of the things that he kind of did was he really lambasted the, uh, the current Romans, if you will. Uh, he basically called them kind of apathetic – kind of soft. He even called out many of the men that lived there as uh, having less 
fight in them than many women in distress. Like that's, and I'm paraphrasing Gibbon. Yeah. He basically said they would rather listen to the cries of their family than pick up a sword and fight. Um, so he was very, very critical of the state of mind of the average Byzantine in Constantinople. However, he does kind of make the point you just made, like for many of these men that went and fought, like Constantine, the other mercenaries that arrived to help them, you know, the the Romans, the Byzantines, the Romans that picked up swords to defend their their city, their family, their empire. There was kind of this vestige of Roman and he calls it Roman virtue. So I have to think that there's something kind of in the in the blood that kind of boiled up in this vestige, this vestigial, you know, fire that had been reignited, you know, for one last hurrah and glory to to die on the walls, to die in the city, um, you know, and it's it's interesting to kind of think of it that way, and we kind of glamorize it and make it a little Hollywood esque. But I do happen to think that kind of in those moments where it is truly hopeless, like your only hope is if somebody else comes to save you, because on your own, like you're outnumbered over ten to one, you live in a crumbling city, and these cannons are going to terrify you when they start going off. So, you know, that's the run up to the battle. So, I guess my question before I start going through the the timeline of battle, do you think there was in any way that they could have won or survived? I should say that's that's probably the better way to phrase it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's always a way. And as we were talking outside of the recording last week, uh, one of my favorite, although it's been a hot minute since I've <laughs> did any kind of real reading or research on it, but the Siege of Malta and the Knights... Uh, how do you how do you pronounce it? My Hospitaller? French is hospitalier. Hospitaller? Yeah, hospitalier. Yeah, hospital. I don't know. For, if if anyone enough. from France is listening, please help us. My French pronunciation is terrible. I don't speak French. Um, but yeah, like that. And uh, was it Valletta? Was that guy? Like those dudes were. You know, I don't know enough to compare and say like if they had better or worse odds at the beginning, but it was pretty bleak. Uh, now, granted, it being an island. And I think there's a good argument to be made that it wasn't so much that the knights beat the Ottomans as much as the the Ottomans just couldn't get their logistics figured out. And the logistics is what beat the Ottomans. You know what I mean? Like the disease and starvation killed more Ottomans than any knight hospitalier did, of which that was not the same here in Constantinople. Like they had probably much better logistics. But even so, like they still won, the Knights did. And I mean, I suppose like, you know, maybe if things were different, they could have won here. But I think, you know, and the last thing I'll say is one of your points is that you'd made in the beginning was that like Constantinople was surrounded by land. Like the Ottomans had already taken over significant portions of the Balkans. It wasn't like there was still the, you know, Greece left, like it was this tiny little triangle in Thrace. That was all that was left. Like even if the Ottomans lost this battle, they would come back very quickly. So, well, quick yeah. point on that: they actually did lay siege to Constantinople, and I forgot to mention this in 1422, and they were beaten back. But 30 years later, they showed back up, you know, to to mm-hmm. take the city. So, to your point, yeah, I think the the only way they would win is is to reframe what victory actually was. And I think what they were intending was to hold out long enough that help would arrive. That mm-hmm. was really it. Just holding out long enough that help could arrive. And if they did survive and push the Ottomans back, that maybe the West would come and help and kind of save them and, and retake some of their land. But there's actually a couple points in the battle where I think it's kind of a moment of fate. And I'll bring it up when we get to it. But there's a few points where like had had someone survived or had someone not been grievously wounded or pulled from the walls or panic ensued, maybe things would have been different. All right. So, let's get into the battle. So, as the army departs from Adrianople, the artisans, the masons are reforming the roads. They're, they're preparing for this. You know, all diplomacy is broken down between the Byzantines and the Ottomans. They can't be bribed. They solely want to take Constantinople. On April 5th, Mehmed II arrives five miles outside of the city and and sets up his tent and raises his standard right in front of the city. This begins the siege of Constantinople officially because the next day, um, they began to 
capture the, there's some small little other villages and cities and, and castles that aren't really of note, but they start taking those over. And within a few days, they, they completely fall with really not a lot of resistance, so to speak. Some of them just outright surrendered, some fought, some kind of retreated into the city, but that really begins the city. So that was on April 5th. And so if you're looking at the triangle of the city, you know, you've got Mehemet standing outside and he's actually kind of standing basically directly across from Emperor Constantine the 11th. And Emperor Constantine was at the Mesotechion Gate or Wall, excuse me. To his immediate right is Giustiani. To his right is Bocchiardi. And further north is Minoto. And then to Constantine's left is Theodore Caristo. And then Contiarini and then Kunse. So those are kind of the, the leaders or the generals. And they, they actually didn't have enough troops to man both walls. So if you remember, there's two walls here. Uh, the, the Byzantines have to decide like, okay, we're going to man the, the outer walls and we're going to man at points that we think that the Ottomans are going to concentrate their forces at. And so, within inside the city, I mentioned there's a few hundred Turks. They were there guarding one of the seawalls. Cardinal Isidore had, had 200 other soldiers with him. They were kind of on the inside of the city. And then, obviously, the Byzantines had like 18 or no, excuse me, 26 war galleys and ships inside the Golden Horn. The Ottomans actually brought 325. But of those, I think Gibbon makes note that only a couple dozen were actually considered galleys. Most of them were basically like flotillas or service ships. So those began to completely encircle and create a barricade because they couldn't get through the they couldn't get through the the chain gate in the Golden Horn, so they couldn't get in. So they set up a blockade, excuse me, so that foreign ships couldn't break into the city. So April fifth, they began sacking these small castles. These videos. On the 12th, actually, is when the bombardment begins of the actual city. So, this is where the Sultan's guns, kind of right along this this four-mile stretch directly in front of the city, begin a concentrated artillery barrage. And so, this is a quote from one of the Turkish soldiers. And when it, it had caught fire faster than you can say it, there was a first terrifying roar and a violent shaking of the ground beneath and for a great distance around and such a din and a din such has never been heard. Then with a monstrous thundering and an awful explosion and a flame that illuminated everything around about and scorched it, the wooden wad was forced out by the hot blast of dry air and propelled the stone ball powerfully out. Projected with incredible force and power, the stone struck the wall, which it immediately shook and demolished. It was itself shattered into many fragments, and the pieces were hurled everywhere, dealing death to those standing nearby. Luckily for the Byzantines, not every shot was this dramatic, at least on their end. So, these cannons are still, though devastating, very, very rudimentary still. And, you know, if they're setting up their bombardment a mile outside the city entrenched with almost battlefield fortifications around them. They're not very mobile. It's difficult to move the, move the cannons to, re, to readjust fire. And it also takes a long time for it to reload. And actually, the Orban gun, the, the really big one, could only fire like seven shots a day to prevent it from like breaking apart because it was so powerful. So, most of these shots, especially in the early part of the battle, were inaccurate and they were such a slow rate of fire that the Byzantines were able to come out and repair the walls before they were ever really be able to breach. So, with that being said though, most gunners were able to fire about 120 rounds a day. And so, I think that ended up being like 5,000 rounds per gunner over the course of the 47-day battle and 55,000 pounds of gunpowder were expelled. Crazy amounts considering the time period. And I also think that would have to be kind of awe-inspiring for the Turks to see these new weapons because they've probably never seen anything like it before. This is really like, like I mentioned, they, these had been in, in service for about 100 years, but you know, not at this scale, not with 14 different batteries firing across the four-mile stretch of walls. And then for the Byzantines, it had to be utterly terrifying hearing this thundering roar coming towards you and, and destroying these thousand-year-old walls, which had protected you for so many sieges. 
Yeah, so I'm, that- I'm thinking if you're if you're a random Turk soldier and you just see these humongous stone balls just smashing into the walls, that's probably gonna you know morale's good. Improve morale. Yeah. As yeah you have to, to like, think oh. like we are going to win this battle. There's no way they can yeah. stand. So but that yeah. barrage continues. Right around the time of this bombardment, there was about ten Venetian ships that managed to make it into the harbor. They brought with they broke the blockade, they brought more soldiers, and they brought hope and morale that more Western soldiers were going to come to rescue them. As a matter of fact, this was really embarrassing for the Turks and Mehmed II, who was known to be, uh, he was prone to outbursts, actually had the leader of the, the admiral of the Turks who was in charge of the blockade, he had him whipped a hundred times. And, and I think he even received a wound during the, the blockade when the ships were running the blockade. So, he was wounded and I think it was an eye wound. So, he had like one eye and then he got a hundred lashes. So, absolute embarrassment. And so, then the sieges occurred for 20, 17 days at this point and Mehmed has not had the breakthrough that he wants. So, on the 22nd of April, he decides that they're going to grease up some wooden rollers and they're going to begin moving their boats across uh, the peninsula out on outside of Galatia, Galata, which was that suburb to the north. So, they're going to move them across land several miles into the Golden Horn. So, this is actually very successful. So, it allowed them to move ships and supplies into the Golden Horn. So, they were inside the fortifications of the water of the Byzantines. So, that had to be quite a rude awakening to wake up one morning and see Ottoman ships that you thought you were able to keep out with the the, cha- the sea chain suddenly now inside the Golden Horn. And on the 28th of April, there was an unsuccessful attempt to use Greek fire to burn some of these Ottoman ships that had made it into the Golden Horn. I think there were a couple of Venetians that were killed when this happened and the Ottomans were so enraged because I think they did suffer some casualties at this point. And Mind you, the battle's been going on for a few weeks where they've suffered a lot of casualties. Mm. They were enraged. They took the, they executed the surviving Venetians that had attempted this and they put them, they impaled them and they were uh, taunting the Byzantines with the bodies of the Venetians. So the Byzantines took out like 260 Turkish prisoners that they had or Ottoman prisoners that they had and began executing them and basically desecrating their bodies in front of the the Ottomans. So, tensions were hot at this point. Hey, this is this is kind of a random question, but did the Ottomans like make any attempt to just like starve them out or did they no. just show up and start blasting? They showed up and started blasting. So, that's that's interesting. Think about the kind of goes back to the personality of Mehmed II where he remember when I said like his soul it it was divinely given, it was his divine right. And it was his ancestor's right that he was now coming to fulfill to take Constantinople and he would accept nothing less than that. He did not want to starve them out. He didn't want a long siege because I think also in his mind, he knew that if he played that game where this dragged on for months, that suddenly, you know, Western powers might come to their senses and then attack him because for him, then he would fight a two front conflict and he didn't want that. So, it wouldn't make sense for him to do that. From May 1st to May 15th, there was continuous frontal assaults. And so, this was pretty disastrous for the Ottomans because they were sending, they weren't sending Janissaries at this point. They were sending just their regular infantry and and general average soldiers who were conscripts at best. So, they weren't very well trained. They were just being propelled forward because they were ordered to do so. And so, there was a Venetian doctor, so Niccolo Barbaro, and in his one of his journals, he had described it like this. They found the Turks coming right up under the walls and seeking battle, particularly the Janissaries. I stand corrected, the Janissaries were there. And when one or two of them were killed, at once more the Turks came and looked away, came and took away the dead ones. Without caring how near they came to the city walls, our men shot at them with guns and crossbows, aiming at the Turk who was carrying away his dead countrymen, and both of them would fall to the ground dead. And then there came other Turks and took them away, none fearing death, but willing to to let 10 of themselves be killed rather than suffer the shame of leaving a single Turkish corpse by the wall. So, it kind of highlights the bravery of the Turkish soldiers, but also the immense casualties that they started taking. So, these frontal assaults were primarily by untrained 
or conscripts at best were taking heavy casualties. The Janissaries were involved, but they just couldn't break through. At this point in the battle and the siege, Mehmed resorted, Mehmed II resorted to tunneling and mining the the fortifications. So uh, I think Hollywood kind of does a bad, bad job of ex- kind of showing what sieges looked like in medieval times because most of us think of it as this massive assault and it's over in a few hours. Like as this battle is progressing, so we got to think that at this point now, it's been going on over a month. The fortifications that the Turks are being are building are progressively moving forward. So they're building makeshift ramparts and earthen ramparts with reinforced by timber and wood. And they're moving those closer and closer and closer to the city as well. And now they're going to utilize tunnels to dig under the underground, under the walls and try and break through the other side or bring the walls down. Well, luckily for the Byzantines, they have a man by the name of Johann Grant who came over with some of the other mercenaries from Genoa. And he was actually like a tunneling expert. And he helped the Byzantines find the the Turkish tunnels and they found them and they basically broke through and slaughtered them with a combination of Greek fire and just soldiers trapping them in there. They actually captured a few, some of the off- Turkish officers and they brought them back and tortured them and got them to tell them where all the other tunnels were. And then the nice. Byzantines went through and they, yeah, they just went through and destroyed all the other tunnels with Greek combination of Greek fire and just butchery. Nice. And that was from for 10 days between May 15th and May 25th. Can you imagine 24 hours a day for 10 days, your job is to just like find grown men in like these narrow tunnels and just try to kill as many of them as possible. I don't think like, people realize how brutal it would be because these tunnels are savage, dark. man. They're going to be narrow, yeah. and it's not like a it's not like a mine shaft where we've got this wide open machine dug hole. It's it is people with like hand tools digging these things, flamethrowers, and, and somebody you break through, and oh, we just found the Byzantine tunnel, and they're standing right there with Greek fire, and we're burned alive in a makeshift mud oven. Be horrible. Yeah, the there's an element of savagery. That is so difficult to wrap our heads around. Uh, I mean, I've never, uh, I've never, you know, dug a tunnel like that. But I did have the pleasure one time of going to the DMZ, the demilitarized zone in between North and South Korea, and of which the North Koreans have dug several tunnels that we've found over the years, and you can you can go in a couple of them. One of them was open when I was there and it's like, I'm six foot two, you know, in height and I'm like doubled over at the waist, hunched over, crawling through. And these tunnels are like miles long. So, it's like, can you imagine like digging, digging, you know, your job's like counter dig, counter dig, and then like fight these dudes in the tunnels when you find it. Like I can only, that's crazy to think about. It is. And the savagery aspect I think is is key to remember here because now and on May 26th, the next three days are the final assault. So on May 26th, I think at this point, Mehmed II is honestly, I, I read this as he's desperate because at this point, he's probably lost thousands of his troops are dead. He knows that this can't drag out much longer. And if he, it's kind of an, he puts his chips on the table. This is an all or nothing final assault. You know, if I lose, I retreat and I come back late, you know, maybe I come back later, but I'll be disgraced. But if I, I can be successful here, we can win. This is it. This is the final assault. And I think he did it partly because of the savagery that he was seeing from the defenders that he knew that, you know, their backs are against the wall for survival. And he's looking at his men and they're being slaughtered at the walls and they're not really making any progress despite all of these cannons and all of this numerical superiority. They're just not, they're not breaking through these old walls yet. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, the walls are reduced to rubble at this point, but they haven't been able to break through the rubble and make it into the city. So May 26th, Mehmed II declares, you know, he allows the soldiers to begin rest. He begins religious ceremonies to prepare for the final assault. So, I think there's this kind of somber element that sets over the camp for the Turks where they know that 
This is it. And, you know, that's why they're having these religious ceremonies. The final preparations are being made due. He's meeting with his officers, planning on the different waves that are going to occur and where they're going to attack. There's been, there's some, uh, I saw somewhere there was a historical account that there was an omen that was seen by both Byzantines and the the Turks at this point, and it was a bad omen for the Byzantines, and it was a good omen for the Turks. I'm um, kind of like right around this time because you know once you start, if you're the defending army and you start to see the enemy not leaving but they're not attacking, you have to know something's coming. And Constantine, you know, pulls his his generals in, in they have a kind of a final meeting as well where they. As Gibbon goes through, he said they embraced, they kind of accepted their fate that this is the final assault, that nobody's able to come and help. The Venetian ships have come back to the harbor and they couldn't find any other help anywhere outside in the Aegean. This is it. And they kind of made peace that they were going to die in this battle heroically. Maybe they live, but probably not. And so they began their religious ceremonies internally to internal to the city of Constantinople. And it was said that it was a combination Greek Orthodox and Latin Catholic Catholic service as well. And I have to think that the rest of the city and the populace kind of understood what was about to happen. There's accounts of people collecting all of their gold and silver and precious materials to hope that they would be able to pay off the Turks when they came in the city to avoid being, uh, raped, killed, or sold into slavery, you know, making any final preparations to hide that they can or escape. There were some ships that managed to escape at this point, but I have to think that these last 36 hours were probably some of the lowest of the low that you can imagine. They did have a a service, um, basically praying one last time for, for mercy and help in their final hour. So, the final assault occurred at just after midnight the 29th. So this final assault began in waves. Like like previous assault, it began in waves. Wave after wave was beaten back until finally the Janissaries, the elite Ottoman soldiers began storming the wall. And there's one Janissary in particular called Hassan the Janissary, who was supposedly a giant of a man who was able to scale the walls and make it to the top. And that had not been done yet. And so when he made it to the top he led a few other Janissaries to the top. It kind of made this great moment where the Turks were able to look up and see that it could be done. And all of a sudden, ladders started going up, ropes started going up, and more and more Janissaries were scaling the walls everywhere at once. And even still though, the Christian soldiers were able to fight most of them off until Guistiani received a grievous wound. And this is kind of that moment in fate where one of the leaders receives grievous wound and he's kind of evacuated from the battle. And at this moment, uh, the soldiers begin to panic on the wall. And when panic starts to set in in a moment like this, it's kind of like the dam starts to break. And that's exactly what happened. As as Christian sol- Byzantine soldiers and Western uh, mercenaries began withdrawing from the wall and breaking into, and pulling back into the city, the Janissaries began overwhelming them. And so, at this point of the city, the walls are breached. The Christians are retreating into the city and the Janissaries and the rest of the Ottoman army break through and begin fanning out through the city. And this is kind of where the last moments of the Roman Empire begin. It's said that at this point, Constantine XI recognized that the walls were breached, the city was falling, and there's this heroic moment where he drops the purple his purple cape and his purple regalia signifying that he was the emperor and led one last desperation charge in the streets and was never seen from again. He died at some point in the battle underneath the heap of bodies. And that's how he led his, uh, how he led his army. Once the city had fallen, see it is, he went out, you know, you can't fault him. He went out bravely. Mehmed II promised his soldiers three days of plunder for the city. And this plunder really turns into um, just basically atrocity. Now, plundering a city is pretty much exactly what you think of in the Middle Ages. So, it entails rape, murder, taking all of the goods, burning things down to the ground. Uh, so, at this point, the survivors of the city are fleeing into the Church of St. Sophia and kind of barricading themselves in. And Gibbon kind of paints this 
last picture where he said that they were praying for mercy or help, anything. And he said, again, I'm paraphrasing him, but basically it would require an angel to come down from heaven with a sword to drive the invaders out. That was the only thing that was going to save them. And it never came. Fortunately, the walls or the doors of St. Sophia were breached and people were either murdered on the spot or they were bound up, raped, killed, robbed, sold into slavery. So, uh, you know, we mentioned the city was about 50,000 people. Estimates between 30 to 50,000 people were killed or sold into slavery at the end of the battle. There were some that managed to make it out. During the chaos of the evacuation, some Venetian and ships from Genoa were able to slip the blockade. Some of their soldiers and civilians were able to escape on there, but, but not many. Now, within this three days of plunder, like kind of in my research on it, there's some debate on how cruel and uh, horrible it was. You've got one side where you you think that they're kind of exaggerating it a little bit to paint them as more the Turks as morally inferior, and then there's kind of the other side that's sort of discounting it and saying it really wasn't that bad because there's this report that was given to the Venetian Senate that said that there were survivors. So. You, you kind of read between the lines and you just need to understand that this was almost 700 years ago and it was probably incredibly violent. There was probably horrible mass rape and murder and plunder and people sold into slavery. And that's just what happened. And at the end of three days, there really wasn't much of a city left. Any of the Christian survivors that weren't taken into captivity or murdered were allowed to return to their homes if they still had a home standing. The rest were sold into slavery. And at that point, Mehmed II had walked into the city and reclaimed uh, Constantinople as his. And that was the end of Constantinople and the fall of the Byzantine Empire. You know, it's so it's impossible to understate the significance of the fall of this one city, right? You had a thousands of years of empire from Western Rome to Eastern Rome to now, like, I think when it comes to, you know, we talk about these falls of empires, like the fall of the Han Dynasty, it was kind of like, okay, Han Dynasty was around for 400 years. It was significant. They were replaced by another, like, Chinese empire, right? The fall of Constantinople's like, it's over. Didn't get it back. This tectonic movement in world history, there's probably few like you know it's interesting that events are II more significant. Tried to take the title of Caesar and declare that Constantinople was you know he was the now this is now he is still Rome even though he had no oh yeah religious or you know ethnic or any real connection to Rome he other than the city now and that's but that's kind of how important that city was that he took the city so now he was Caesar and that's kind of how he viewed himself he was renamed or he had was named afterward Mehmed the conqueror yeah just a quick look up of how the ottomans used the title caesar i mentioned earlier i don't have good french i have even worse worse Turkish. So, but it looks like Kaysar, uh, Q A Y S A R, is Caesar in Turkish. And they adopted it because they were trying to legitimize their rule, but at the same time was trying to, like, hey, I, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, want to claim this, like, universal empire of both East and West, which is crazy because it's like, Hey, I'm actually the continuity of now the Roman Empire. Like I took Constantinople, so I'm Caesar. It's pretty wild that they would try to adopt that. It just goes to show you the significance of that city. Yeah, Jay. I mean, I think not only is the city important, but then the fall of it, it sets up a lot of history that I don't think people really put together. And this is kind of what, why we do it. But you know, now that Constantinople was gone and there's all the, you know, all the other loss of the Byzantines. The West was really dis- now had this big disconnect between the East. And there was an enemy now that was kind of at this one sitting at this spot where they were able to connect into the East and get these goods, the Silk Road, 
now that was cut off and conflict was now going to continue between these two powers, you know, between the East and West, Christians and Muslims. And it's going to start to force Christians to try and find, you know, Europe and Christians to find a new way around to gain access to the goods that they want. And, you know, kind of pushes them to the West, you know, just 50 years or 40 years later, Christopher Columbus sails the ocean blue and he, yeah, it's a nice way to say it. He makes his way to North America, but the whole point, and it's not anything about Christopher Columbus, but it's the point of why he was sent and why he went out there, why mm-hmm. he went out there, why this Amerigo Vespucci went out there, why all these explorers from Portugal and Spain now were becoming very, very, very famous and very, very wealthy. How those empires now began, became world powers because there's now a need to go west in order to get east because that is now fully cut off from us. I think people underestimate that the significance yeah. of that. Yeah. the um, In many ways, the Renaissance, which had already kind of started prior to, right? Uh, this time, but it really like kicked off because not just Turks, but Arabs as well in North Africa uh, and in Arabia, they had kept a lot of translations of, you know, Greek and Roman documents. And when that world kind of opened up to Italy and the rest of Europe, they, you know, these these Byzantines and these, you know, um, ethnic minorities that were escaping uh, Islam and they were bringing this back to Europe. That's where those like sources, those early texts, those Greek and Latin texts like got back out into Europe. So, it's like, it's almost like for the plant to fully grow, the plant of the Renaissance to grow, it first has to die in the ground. And that was the Byzantine Empire. It really set the stage for the acceleration of the West. Now, I think that's a great, that, that is such a great way to say it. It needed, needed to be pruned in order for the West to accelerate. Now, the Ottomans are now a superpower at this point and they began pushing further. Mm. They, and they will continue to grow significantly. They get to the gates of Vienna. And they, you know, they become a massive powerhouse, but the Western powers, Spain, Portugal, France, England, some of these Italian states, eventually Germany, Poland, they all become nations and in their own right. And I think, yeah, you're right. The Renaissance and kind of this kickoff of, it's like this death of the old world, the Middle Ages. So, these new empires can be propelled forward. Colin, thank you so much for walking us through the siege and fall of Constantinople. It, you know, it's such a watershed moment in world history, and it's so difficult to do that battle justice in the hour-ish time that we tried to do our podcast. But I think, I think you did a great job, uh, for what it's worth. And to our listeners out there, if you like what we're doing as well, let us know. We always like your feedback. The best way you can give us that feedback is to give us a five-star review if you like this episode. If you didn't like this episode, feel free to uh, reach out to us on social media. You can send us a DM on Instagram, on X or Facebook. But if you did like it, we appreciate the five-star reviews. If you leave a comment, we'll give you a shout-out in our next episode. Um, And we also want to hear what you would like for us to talk about next. If you've got an empire that you're just dying to hear us talk about, feel free to just leave us a comment and we'll do the best we can to uh, incorporate that in our next series. So with that, hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to seeing you next week on the loins of history.